Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, August 9th. The resounding defeat yesterday of that anti-referendum referendum in Ohio, an apparent big win for abortion rights without the word abortion being on the ballot, and a win for direct democracy, policy made by the people, not gerrymandered legislatures. We're going to get a legal take on this now, how it fits into our democracy according to a legal scholar, and also look at the latest developments in the prosecution of the alleged plot to destroy electoral democracy by Donald Trump. Our guest this round is Kate Shaw, law professor at the Cardoza Law School, an ABC News Supreme Court contributor and co-host of the legal affairs podcast, Strict Scrutiny. She also had an op-ed in the New York Times published Monday called One of the Most Brazen Republican Schemes Around Abortion is Happening in Ohio. Kate, always good to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Brian, thanks so much for having me. So let's start with your take on the Ohio vote. Voters in that increasingly Republican state, for those who haven't heard the news, rejected the Republicans' attempt to make it harder to pass ballot measures that was aimed at a ballot measure that they'll be voting on in November for abortion rights. What does it mean for abortion rights as you see it? And what does it mean for the nature of American law? You know, obviously, this is a really important outcome for the state of Ohio and the future of abortion rights and abortion access in Ohio, but it obviously has national resonance as well. So, as you said, this was a referendum not squarely about abortion. It was about making it harder to amend the Ohio Constitution. But the legislature in Ohio called this special election in order to raise the threshold for amending the Constitution, almost certainly because... There was an effort underway that has now proven successful to get an abortion question on the November ballot. So definitely Ohioans are going to go to the ballot in November to decide whether to amend the Ohio Constitution to protect abortion. The only question was whether only a simple majority of voters would be required to do that, as has been the case under Ohio law since 1912, or whether this new requirement would be successful on the ballot yesterday, which would have raised the threshold to 60 percent, making it much harder to amend the Ohio Constitution. So that would have applied across the board, but its most immediate impact would be felt in how difficult it would be to amend the Constitution to protect abortion rights. So this means I think there's a very good chance, I mean, I wouldn't call it certain, but very likely that after November, there will be constitutional protection in Ohio for abortion rights. So that's really important in this, you know, once sort of bellwether, now pretty conservative red state of Ohio. But I think it also tells us something about the politics following Dobbs, right, which overturned Roe versus Wade last summer. Um, And, you know, Dobbs, the Supreme Court, in that opinion, said, Abortion is a question that should be left to the democratic process, not to the courts. Let's let the people decide state by state whether to protect protect abortion, restrict it, prohibit it outright. And in the year plus since Dobbs, we've seen a lot of legislative activity on abortion, some to protect abortion, some to restrict abortion. But direct democracy has been really interesting because every time people in states that have direct democracy have gone to the ballots, they voted to protect abortion, either to enshrine protections in the Constitution or to fight back efforts to restrict abortion, you know, first and most significantly, I think, in Kansas, right, a pretty red state, where an effort to restrict abortion rights failed spectacularly just a couple of months after Dobbs. Um, So this is a trend, I think, that is now unmistakable that when Americans vote directly on abortion after Dobbs, they vote to protect it. 
For you as a Supreme Court watcher, in your New York Times op-ed, you wrote the episode should serve as a reminder that despite the Supreme Court's claim that Dobbs merely returned the question of abortion to the states, for opponents of abortion, allowing the residents of each state to decide this issue for themselves was never the goal, at least not in the long term. Instead, the long-term goal is to protect uh, to prohibit abortion as widely and as completely as possible. So I think that's an indisputable fact. But do you think that's what the Supreme Court justices had in mind, or do you at least give them credit for grappling honesty with the constitutional question, that is, whether anything in the Constitution could be interpreted as relevant to abortion rights one way or the other? I'm not sure that the answer is the same. So you had you know, five justices who voted to overturn Roe in the Dobbs case. You had a sixth justice, John Roberts, who wouldn't have overturned Roe, but who agreed that Mississippi should be able to enforce its 15-week abortion ban. So, you know, you had six justices um, basically argue that the Constitution either definitely doesn't or maybe doesn't protect a right to abortion, um, but that the state should just decide for themselves. Um, and I'm not sure each of those justices would sort of actually thinks in the same way about what the Constitution really has to say here. Um, I think for some of them, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion that really did seem to say, let the people decide, you know, democracy should be the name of the game when we're talking about a question that is as fraught and divisive as abortion. But I think that for many of the other conservative justices, democracy, I think, was invoked in kind of an instrumental and convenient fashion in the opinion. Returning the question to the states was, you know, an argument that had been made against abortion rights, against Roe, not actually really immediately following Roe. When Roe was first decided in 1973, it actually wasn't terribly controversial, but quickly became very controversial. And the initial kind of post-Roe response was, well, we have to amend the Constitution to protect human life, to protect the unborn, not just overturning Roe and returning the question to the states, but prohibiting abortion nationwide. That proved quickly politically unpalatable to many Americans. And so actually kind of social movement strategy changed. And so did some of the legal arguments against Roe as the 1970s and 1980s proceeded. And I think both a lot of legal conservatives and a lot of sort of movement activists came to rest on this position that we're not trying to ban abortion nationwide. We're just trying to return the question to the states. So that was a strategic decision that was made. But I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that that actually, in fact, I'm quite convinced that that is not actually the kind of preferred outcome for many, many anti-abortion activists. I mean, for obvious reasons, right? If you genuinely believe that abortion is tantamount to ending a life, then it can't possibly be tolerable to just let states decide whether to adopt a policy that permits that. Um, so I actually think that a lot of these arguments grounded in democracy are strategic and instrumental, but not actually good faith. Um, and so I think that Dobbs rested on democracy largely because that felt like a palatable place to, to kind of land. But for some of the justices in the majority, and I think for many anti-abortion activists and believers, um, that's actually a kind of way station en route to a final destination, which is actually a nationwide prohibition. And whether that takes the form of a statute passed by Congress, signed by the president that prohibits abortion nationwide, um, or whether it takes the form of a Supreme Court opinion that finds, either based on the due process clause or equal protection principles, that the unborn have a right to life. Either way, that that's actually the ultimate goal. And that, again, I'm not sure which of the Supreme Court's conservative justices are fully committed to that outcome, but I do believe that for some of them, and probably for Justice Alito, who wrote the opinion in Dobbs, that actually is the final objective. And so, 
these efforts to actually restrict access to direct democracy in the wake of Dobbs, I think make good sense from that perspective. Democracy really actually wasn't ever the ultimate goal. Yeah, I always thought that um, saying they wanted the issue returned to the states was a misdirection because they could say that since the Supreme Court's road decision was stopping a state from enforcing uh, an abortion restriction, but it was just to return it to the political sector generally. Uh, And that could include the states, but that also could include uh, some kind of national ban if they were able to to affect that in Congress. So there's a difference between returning it to the states and returning it to the political de- uh, debate, the political sector um, that's meaningful. But in that context, Kate, is it possible that what's happening now as a result of Dobbs could ultimately lead to a more secure abortion rights future in the U.S.? It's certainly not in the short run with all these emboldened Republican legislatures. But if the anti-abortion movement doesn't have a right created by the Supreme Court to kick around anymore, these wins in the political system might be seen as more definitive or might just become entrenched as more definitive. And the movement against women's rights in this respect will be diminished. You know, I think it's complicated, Brian, because so direct democracy, as we've just been talking about, has been very successful in protecting abortion rights and abortion access. But not every state has a robust direct democracy mechanism, right? So really only about half of American states even have procedures by which you can put a substantive question like, is there a right to bodily autonomy or to choose to continue or terminate a pregnancy on the ballot so that people can vote outright? So I think that in the states where that's possible and where legislatures are not successful in throttling the ability of the people to go to the polls and express their views outright, then I do think that it's possible that abortion rights will be enshrined in a durable way. But it's not really a nationwide solution because in many states there just isn't access to direct democracy or legislatures are impeding the ability of direct democracy to function. So, you know, there could be, if we're looking to kind of what could be a durable national solution, I I do think that Congress passing a law and and presumably a Democratic president signing a law that enshrines some protections for abortion access, you know, would be a nationwide solution. Would it be a durable one that would lay to rest political controversy? No, I don't think so. And I, I don't know whether this Supreme Court would uphold a law like that, you know, or Hmm. whether that would just be a way for the Supreme Court to, you know, either the Supreme Court could find that Congress lacks the power under the Commerce Clause or under other constitutional sources of authority to even pass a nationwide abortion protection law. Um, Or if the Supreme Court did take that significant next step and find that the Constitution protects a right to life for the unborn, um, then, of course, a federal law protecting abortion would be deemed unconstitutional. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure, apart from overturning Dobbs and understanding again, I think in a different and probably better grounded way that the Constitution's protections do encompass the liberty to choose whether to remain pregnant or to terminate a pregnancy, that I think actually probably is the most durable long-term way to protect abortion. But I think it's a long path given this Supreme Court and the federal courts in general uh, from here to there. And you know, the premise of your question, would that actually resolve political controversy? Not necessarily, but I'm not sure any of these other paths would either. 
All right, let's go on to the next battle in the legal system over the nature of American democracy, the prosecution of Donald Trump for allegedly attempting to defraud the United States and disenfranchise voters with his schemes to flip his election defeat. The immediate battle is over the scope of what's known as a protective order regarding things Trump can or cannot say in public. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what a protective order is, as that's going to be back in court on Friday? Sure thing. So it's just an order that places limits on basically how information that gets exchanged as part of legal proceedings uh, can be used. So they're very standard. So when the prosecution, once you know there's been an indictment, the prosecution turns over a lot of information to the defendant in order to enable the defendant to prepare a robust defense. Um, and oftentimes within that discovery that the prosecution hands over to the defense, there's information that is sensitive. And so the prosecution will seek a protective order that places limits on what the defense team can do with that information. Typically just can't publicly disseminate it. If there are, you know, grand jury transcripts in the discovery or there's identifying information about witnesses and things of that nature. Um, and typically defense counsel will just agree to that protective order. Sometimes there's some, you know, negotiation or discussion about what the protective order scope will be. But again, they're pretty routine documents. Um, and yet it is already turning out to be an anything but routine proceeding in the particular in the January 6th prosecution. So actually, there are already protective orders in effect in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. That's the other federal case that Trump is facing. And in the New York, you know, Stormy Daniels hush money business records case. Um, so it is not as though former President Trump's legal team has never agreed to a protective order, but they are very much resisting the proposals that you know, uh, special, pro or, you know, the, the, the prosecutor Jack Smith's team has proposed in two separate proposals uh, with respect to the January 6th discovery. And so there's going to be a hearing this Friday uh, before Judge Chutkin in the District of Columbia, um, essentially to hash out the contours of a protective order. But I presume one will be entered either Friday or shortly thereafter. Have you as a lawyer or a legal scholar ever seen a case where a defendant seems to implicitly threaten the prosecutors, future juries, the judge by saying, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you, as Trump posted the other day? I never have. And I, I don't think there's ever been a defendant quite like Donald Trump, you know, in, in this case. This was really wild. So on, on Friday, I think it was, this was a social media post in all caps that you just quoted, Brian. Um, and it's not even such a veiled threat, right? That feels like a pretty explicit threat. And so that excerpt went right into the filings that special counsel Jack Smith's team uh, produced for the district court, basically as an example of why it was so important. So basically what the special counsel's team is asking for is an order that prevents Trump from disclosing any evidence that he gets from the prosecution publicly at all, right? So they basically say there are already these threatening social media posts like the one you just read. Um, and the discovery is going to include things like grand jury testimony and witness interviews and information regarding surveillance and things like that. Um, and it's really, really important that he be prohibited from disseminating that information. It could endanger, you know, specific individuals, uh, it could get really specific, right? So now these are kind of generalized threats, but if he is able to take that information and um, incorporate it into his public relations campaign, 
the stakes could be really high and people could be in genuine danger. And so um, that's essentially the case that Smith's team is making. They're basically saying, we're, we want to turn this information over and we want to turn it over quickly because we want to move things along, right? They very much want a trial date to be set and they want it to be set soon. And in order to do that, they need to give the defendant the information that, you know, the Constitution requires you get access to to prepare a defense. Um, but they don't want to do that in a way that's going to jeopardize, you know, witnesses, individuals, you know, personnel. Um, and so that's their kind of goal in seeking this protective order. And what Trump's team is basically saying is a protective order along the lines that Smith is asking for will violate his free speech rights, right? They, they want him to be able to speak publicly about these proceedings, maybe even about the contents of the discovery. And they say that, you know, maybe we'll agree to something more narrow that just encompasses things like grand jury transcripts, but we can't agree to essentially a prohibition on him talking broadly about the case, certainly, but even particular elements of the evidence. Um, and it's hard for me to see the judge being very receptive to those arguments, but we will see on Friday. Well, the Trump argument is that this is political speech. Even that post, uh, which seems so threatening, was political speech aimed at Trump's political opponents in the context of him running for the presidency again and being the leading Republican candidate at this time, not the individuals working in the legal system or witnesses before the grand jury. In fact, the right to try to use the levers of our political system seems to be at the heart of Trump's defense in the case overall. Here's a clip yeah. of something he said recently. And it is an outrageous criminalization of political speech. They're trying to make it illegal to question the results of an election. And that's on January 6th, or I should say the, the whole post-election period after the 2020 election. Generally, Trump and his lawyers have been saying he may have lost in his effort to get state legislatures to reject the certified votes in their state. And he may have lost in his effort to convince Mike Pence that he had the power to reject the Biden vote from selected states. But those efforts were just failed attempts to win at politics not crimes. How do you think a prosecutor will respond to that? Well, I think there's already some preemptive responses to it in the indictment itself, right? Page two of the indictment goes out of its way, bends over backwards to say the defendant had a right to speak about the election. He had a right to lie about the election. He had a right to lie, to say that there had been outcome determinative fraud. So that, you know, and honestly, none of the statements, like the statements on the ellipse, the, you know, if you don't fight like hell, you won't have a country. That was kind of at the core of the second Trump impeachment. That's not even really part of these charges. The charges are much more focused on trying to obstruct the governmental proceeding of the opening and counting of the ballots on January 6th, um, the actual effort to deprive individual voters of their right to vote by seeking to fraudulently substitute electors who did not reflect the votes of individuals in states. So I think the, the, the prosecution itself is trying very hard to target conduct that was clearly fraudulent and obstructive and to stay very far away from seeking to punish speech. And yet there is this effort to essentially collapse the distinction that I think the Trump team is already making in the public sphere, and they're very likely to mount as a defense in court. Um, and I think the two are just different. And I don't mm. think that what Smith's team is doing here is trying to criminalize speech. But I expect us to hear that again and again from Trump, again, both publicly and in court. Kate Shaw, law professor at Cardoza Law School and ABC News Supreme Court contributor and co-host of the Legal Affairs podcast, strict scrutiny. Kate, thanks so much for all of this. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me, Brian.
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. Thank you.